Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services provider for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and data that helps power their emerging markets business strategies. Today, we're going to discuss one of the thorniest questions in distribution management, how to motivate distributors that represent more than one company's brands to aggressively give preference to your brand and product lines. My name is Dan Cornfield, and I am the head of Management Best Practices Research at Frontier Strategy Group. We are very pleased to have Rick Bossard joining us for today's podcast. He has over 30 years of experience building and managing distribution channels for the high-tech industry in Europe, the United States, South Asia, and Asia-Pacific. Rick's career includes vice presidential positions managing global channel sales at companies such as Freescale, Microchip, Mentor Graphics, Zillog, Motorola, and Waferscale Integration. While Rick's experience is concentrated in the high-tech sector, we're going to keep this conversation focused on principles generally applicable to channel management, regardless of your industry. Please listen to our separate podcast on lessons in technology industry channel management for a deeper industry dive. Thanks for joining us for this conversation, Rick. Thanks for having me, Dan. To kick off our conversation, please tell me how badly things can go wrong with a distribution partner. Is it really very common for a distributor to deprioritize a brand that it is supposedly representing and sells? Well, thanks, Dan. It's a very good question and I think a good way to start the conversation. I think the biggest challenge and the most interesting to me over my career in managing a distributor network is the fact that they don't work directly for us. They are an independent business. They have their own independent goals and objectives in their business. And it's quite often the case that it's conflicting and not in sync with what our goals are, meaning that the more money we earn through a distributor's sale, the less they earn and vice versa. That's a good example right there. So I think it can often occur that a distributor and a, and a, and a, a supplier partner have issues with each other. That can revolve around the margins that are paid. It can revolve around the products that are sold and the support of those products. Sure. And so there's really a lot of different minefields that can occur in the relationship between a distributor and a supplier. I think the, the critical thing is to be able to identify those, to be able to address those, and to be able to solve those. Um, ultimately, a distributor is representative of many different lines, and in most cases in the high-tech world, those lines can be conflicting and in even competitors. Uh, as an example, uh, I worked at Freescale, and Freescale and Microchip had competing products, and my distributors had both of those lines. So it can happen based upon the relationship with, with that distributor and with the supplier that a distributor might, and they might not even say anything about it, but in the background, they might deprioritize one brand over another based upon the support they're getting, based upon the margins that they're earning, based upon the ease of sale, the training. There's all kinds of things that can cause that to happen. So it's, it's very critical in managing a distribution channel that you, that you really keep in close touch with them and really understand how that relationship is working and whether they're really working for you or not. Um, they are not direct customer or direct employees, and therefore you can't just tell them what to do because they don't work directly for you. So one would hope for roughly equal treatment at the minimum with uh, other, other lines being sold, but that certainly doesn't always happen for the reasons you've just been outlining. Yes, that's correct. And as a matter of fact, um, equal from the perspective of the supplier is probably not good enough. So, <laughs> you know, my, you know my, my, my mode in running a distribution channel is yep. always of 
having getting what I used to call unfair share of mind. You know, that's really what you're trying to get is unfair share of mind more than what they're giving to your competitors on their on their uh, shelf. Absolutely. And at Frontier Strategy Group, that's one of the things we try to help our clients with is how do you really become as a supplying company the distributor's priority on an ongoing basis? Um, so some of the things we see are that supplying companies can attempt to make this happen on two different levels. One is top-down, interacting with and working with the distributor's leadership. Um, and the other is at the front lines, motivating and equipping the distributor's sales reps a bit more directly. Let's start with the top-down approach. What have you seen companies do to build a bond with a distributor's leadership? It's a good question, and it's very critical to realize that there are two different ways to approach a distributor. As you mentioned, one is top-down and one is bottom-up. My belief is that you need to really cover both bases. There are certain distributor companies who will have stronger influence either from the top up or the bottom down. What I mean by that is there are some distributors I've worked with in the past where the management of the company have an ironclad control over their field. And if you have a relationship at the top levels and you get a commitment to support and push your product line at the top levels and maybe even give you that unfair share of mind, that they will drive that down through to the sales reps at the individual office locations and they will make it happen. There are other distributors that I've worked with where it's the exact opposite. The, the top management might be very sharp and they've got a lot of experience and they understand what your efforts and, and they understand the message you're giving to them in terms of prioritizing your product line, but the salespeople at the local level really operate quite independently. As long as they're making their number, regardless of what you know they're selling to make that number, they're okay. And therefore, if you find that you have a distributor that's of that type, you really do need to make sure that you're not just talking to the top levels because you will get nowhere. You need to have that commitment at the top level, but you also need to do and spend and make sure that the salespeople at the local level are wanting to wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I've got 50 lines in my briefcase. I think I'm going to pull this one out, and this is the one I'm going to present to my customer because I know that I'll get the support, I know that I'll have the backup that I need, I know that I'll make the money that I know I want to make on that, and I know that if, and we'll be talking about this later, but if the design is going to be purchased somewhere else in the world, that I'll be able to actually benefit from that and not lose the order. You, you really have to spend some time understanding your your distributor and understanding how they're motivated, how they drive their salespeople, and where you need to focus your effort. Right, and I guess that's a diagnostic that has to be made distributor by distributor because each internal organization is a little bit different. Exactly. Um, okay. So in, in those cases, which which are the majority where the leadership of the of the distribution partner matters at least somewhat, what what are some of the differentiating activities or, or approaches to building a, a greater bond with the leaders in particular? I, I guess most of our clients understand that you can't just rely on the contract, right? It's it's not enough to say we have an agreement where they represent us and there are certain incentives in place based on the compensation mechanism. Therefore they should be working really hard on our behalf because that won't necessarily happen. I guess a, a couple of the things that we do sometimes hear about are um, joint strategy sessions, joint marketing sessions, actually getting people together in person to feel like they're on the same page and kind of plotting a course forward together. Is that something you've seen uh, work pretty well, or do you think that's a, a little bit overrated or an investment that, that may not actually be worth the effort? I think it can be uh, very effective. What you're really doing when you're sitting down and having joint strategy sessions and, and meetings, and I'm assuming that you're 
addressing mostly at the top levels, although you can pull in distributor sales reps into those meetings, but I would say that in most cases distributors are not willing to pull their sales reps off the street and you know take them out of the selling motion. Mm-hmm. So you're typically doing that with the management or the product management. But what you're typically doing with those strategy sessions is you're trying to impart on them the your vision of your company and where you're going and why they ought to be interested in selling your product. That you're the latest and greatest thing or you've got plans that are going to make you more competitive than the other guy. Remember that, again, whether you're having a strategy session or a meeting or a design review, ultimately these guys are their own independent sales, well, own independent company with their own independent commercial goals. And so all they really care about is hearing from you why they ought to pay attention to you and why that selling your product is going to get them closer to their end goals of meeting their sales quotas and their profit quotas. Um, you know, contracts, you mentioned contracts. Contracts, I find, are just a framework for when you have problems with a company, when mm. something really goes wrong. Contracts by themselves will not get you a, any increase in focus or performance because mm. they're really typically not even revolving around performance. But the typical contracts don't even have performance numbers in there. You can try to put them in. If you then modify those contracts to have, let's say, increased margin per performance, mm-hmm. that might be a way to get them. Because now all of a sudden you've changed it. It's not just that you, they have to follow the contract, but now you're saying, hey, if you meet these criteria or if you meet this sales goal before the end of the year, then I will increase your margin to that number. All of a sudden it's a whole different story and you might might actually get some traction from from a contract, but that would really be the exception to the rule. Right, right. Uh, something along those lines that we sometimes see as a motivation organization to organization is uh, the establishment of different reward bands for distributors to fall into. So they start out as you know like a, a copper distributor, and then they could proceed to become a silver distributor if they hit certain targets. And then at the gold level, they get certain other perks and so forth. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And I've utilized I utilized those before, and and we usually call them certification levels. Um, typically, they revolve around one of two things. They either revolve around performance, you know, specific sales performance, or they revolve around the ability to understand and sell a technology product. Mm. So, the certification levels might be awarded based upon the distributor's application engineers, the field application engineers, being able to present and understand and sell a complex product to the end customer. Uh, because that's in the end what a distributor needs to do if you're selling a high-tech product. If, assuming it's not just a commodity, you're trying to put forward your product to the customer in the end and put it in the right light and be able to, to make that customer feel like he's getting help in terms of designing that product in, and the distributors need to be able to do that. So a certification level is a good tool in terms of recognizing those distributors who put the effort in or who hire the FAEs to and, and allow them to be trained mm-hmm. in order to be more effective in front of the customer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's a great point, Rick, and it actually um, coincides really well with one of the core teaching points we often mention with our clients, which is that if you motivate and measure and equip your distributors on the capabilities that they need to be building and not just the commercial outcomes that you're looking for from them, you're much more likely to get the commercial outcomes that you, you ultimately want, right? So that point about saying, we're not just going to reward you for, for sales as, as a number, but for are your people able to well articulate the value proposition for a particular product line um, is perfectly exactly. in line with that. That's exactly right. And, then, and that is how you motivate and equip 
the distributor sales reps. It is, you know, remember too, if you're a sales guy, a local sales guy or a sales application engineer, mm-hmm. and you're going to go visit your customer, and again, you're back to which line do I pull out of my briefcase to show the customer, and I have five different competing lines, which one am I going to show? You're going to show the one that you feel most comfortable with. You don't want, as a salesperson, to present a product to a customer and have them ask the first question, and you're sitting there completely dumbfounded because you don't know how to answer it. So, you know, being able to equip those distributor salespeople at, at one level and the distributor application engineers at another more intense level to be able to equip them with the information, the training, and the knowledge about your product line, and then to be able to have them convey that to the customer, they'll feel good about that. They'll feel good that they're actually providing value to their customer, and they will really respond well to that. And when they do run into a question, and they inevitably will, that they come back and they know that if they ask you the question and they get back to you through email or a phone call, that they'll get an answer very quickly, and it will be a thorough answer, and that Mm -hmm. they'll get that support. And then they can continue to look and show value to their end customer, and that's what you really want to do. Yeah, absolutely. So... Ultimately, the salespeople just want to have confidence that whatever they pull out of their bag is going to sell, right? Exactly. It's going to sell and that their customer will look at them as being a valuable resource in exchanging information with them about product lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it difficult to get uh, distributor sales reps to be candid about their, I guess, lack of confidence, if that's the case? Do they, is it difficult to get them to come to you and say, you know what, I don't feel like I am selling this well, or people don't seem to like it very much, or do they kind of keep that to themselves? And if so, is there a way to kind of prod that out so that you know when there's a problem and therefore you can address the problem? It's an excellent question, and it's not always easy to understand how strong or weak they are as a sales force. Um, One of my techniques I like to use, and it is predicated upon the fact that you have enough bandwidth to do this, but if you have, for instance, um, local distributor managers that work for your company, so for instance, you have maybe um, a a U.S.-wide distributor guy or even a Northeast distributor uh, distribution manager or we call them regional distribution manager, something along those lines. They have the bandwidth to be able to travel and to spend time at the individual branches. If you have that capability, one of the best tools is to go travel with the salesman for the day. And what I used to like to do is I would go in with them in the morning, have breakfast or whatever, meet them, kind of set up the day and say, okay, we're going to go see four accounts together. I'll do the presentation the first two times, and then you're going to do the presentation the next two times. And, and you all of a sudden get amazing focus from the salesperson when you're doing your presentation because instead of you saying, hey, I'm going to do this because you know I'm better at it, I'm going to do it all day long, and they just uh, kind of sit in the background and work on their computer or their iPhone – all of a sudden they know I'm going to be up and I'm going to be front and center this afternoon doing two presentations. Not only do I have to look intelligent to the customer, but I've also got to look intelligent to this guy coming from the supplier. They're going to pay attention. And I'll tell you what, that's the best way to gauge their, you know, ability and also to have them learn because they're going to really, really want to learn because they don't want to look like they're foolish. And I, I think it's a great technique. And again, it, it's predicated upon the fact of having the bandwidth to go travel with the individual salespeople periodically, but it also shows them that you care and you're out there and you're helping them. You know, the, 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 the suppliers who sit in their ivory tower and talk to the management all day long and they never get out in the field and spend time with the individual salespeople who are, you know, of course, people themselves with their own small goals and individual needs and wants and want to be successful and make a sale, you know, the ones that spend the time with them really have a big, big 
benefit over the ones that don't in terms of mind share. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for making that point, Rick. I think we see this quite a lot, and it's important when we talk about our clients operating in emerging markets. Oftentimes, they have regional hubs, and they may be managing, you know, many distributors in many countries from a central office in, say, Hong Kong or Miami or Panama or something like that. And when the channel managers do actually go out and travel, sometimes they think what they need to do is just build the top line relationship. So, you know, they wine and dine with the with the owners of the distribution company rather than really spending that time with the sales reps on the ground. And and that's a, a really big mistake. Both can be important, but really spending that quality time seeing how they sell and, and accompany them on the sale, I don't think that that can be overemphasized. So great point. Correct. And, and you know, running a distribution channel is a people business. It mm-hmm. is not a numbers crunching, sit in the desk, you know, looking at spreadsheets type of a business. And mm-hmm. again, as I said at the top of the podcast, it is easy to have a direct sales force and tell them what to do. It is infinitely more difficult, but challenging and interesting to motivate an independent sales team that you do not directly control to do what you want for them. And, and that's what I find most intriguing about running a distribution channel and why I focus my career on that. In terms of uh, the skill set to, to manage a distribution channel, it's actually different than the skill set of being an excellent individual salesperson. And yet I think a lot of channel managers have risen through the sales ranks and then they're asked to manage an indirect channel rather than direct. W- what is the translation effect there? What do you think that people really need to learn that they don't already know just by virtue of being good sales people themselves? Well, and that's an excellent question. And I find that one of my biggest challenges at every company that I've worked at in terms of running a distribution channel is the internal selling of the concept of, of distribution and the internal politics, quite frankly, that sometimes go on between the different factions. So what I mean by that is um, in a typical larger-scale high-tech company, you have both direct channel management as well as, or let's call it direct customer managers, as well as independent distribution channel managers. The direct customer managers, of course, have direct salespeople and they call directly on the customers. They're typically the largest customers. That makes sense. You wouldn't want to abdicate the top you know, 20% of the customers that produce 80% of the revenue to a distributor. So very often the large customers have direct salespeople. And so these managers feel quite empowered and they feel quite important because they have the big accounts. And that's great. They need to be successful there. Where the conflict comes sometimes comes in is that you have a distribution channel, which is also just as critical, maybe not to provide all the revenue. You know, you might only have 20 or 30% of your revenue going through distribution. I've been in companies where it's as high as 80%, but but quite often in larger multi-billion dollar companies, it's more in the 20 or 30% range. But it's critical because it is the only vehicle that you have where you can actually find new customers and bring new customers to the company because the top level direct sales guys aren't spending any time prospecting and they shouldn't. So it's really important for the direct sales managers and the distribution sales managers in each region to work cohesively and together. And very often, the part that causes the most friction, the area that causes the most friction is the discussion between when does a account become a direct account? You know, when does it get taken away from distribution and become a direct account? And that's a really tough question because if you're trying to motivate a distribution channel to work on accounts and to build them up and to put more product in there and to, to increase the sales every year, at some point, those will become bigger. And you have to recognize that those accounts were brought to you because of the 
expertise and the effort and the resources put in by the distributor, not because there was some direct guy sales, sales guy calling on it. However, the direct sales guys don't really care about that, and all they care about is they see another plum that's arrived, and it's a low-hanging fruit, and they want to grab it. So it's, it's really, really important to have a cohesive strategy between those. Typically, it's the worldwide VP of sales that needs to make sure that happens. That, and, and very often, one of the ways to solve that problem is to have those managers, both direct and distribution, to be co-compensated. So they're compensated for each other's success as well as their own. To have them make, have them look at a bigger picture of what the company's trying to achieve, and not to, um, you know, try to steal each other's business. So yes, the, the relationship and the individual regions between the direct channel and the distribution channel is very critical, and it can make or break a program for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. The the peering into the internal politics. It's it's amazing how underestimated that often is from from the outside, right? When you um, read articles in, in say, McKinsey Quarterly, it's, it's, it's often so, f- or not to pick on anybody in particular, Harvard Business Review, uh, general management best practices articles in the corporate center often assume that people are on the same page in a way that once you get out into the periphery of the organization can be harder to coordinate sometimes and, and making sure that that happens is, yeah. Yep, and that's a very well thought-out study, I'm sure, and it's true. And, and a lot of times, even the senior management at the company, the executive level, don't even realize what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, j- just one more question along these lines of the difference between indirect sales management and direct sales management. If you were to pluck somebody who is an excellent salesperson and try to make them a channel manager, what would they need to learn quickly in that process that they might even take for granted, that they don't realize they're missing some skills that they're going to need because they're going to manage other firms now, not just prospects? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, I don't know that there's a really easy answer for it. But ultimately, a direct salesperson or a direct sales manager is very used to a very black and white, clear relationship with each customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about providing value and, and exchanging that for price and negotiating and, and working with their engineering departments to get things designed in. The ultimate I think answer to that question is, is that the regional distribution manager or the distribution manager needs to realize that he can't talk to every single customer himself. There's way too many of them, and they're way too small, right. and he would never get anywhere if he was doing that. So his job has completely changed from being one of direct contact to customers to having to replicate his knowledge and his uh, experience on the product line to the distributors, to to enable them to be successful with the customers on behalf of him. So every hour of training that he spends or every hour of planning that he spends with the distributor ought to be replicated into 5 and 10 and 20 hours worth of effort by 20 different salespeople in front of his potential customer base. And that really is the very first step in trying to get your head around what, what the job is. It's not... Uh, trying to do everything yourself and, and being able to talk to each customer yourself because you won't be able to. Got it. Okay. Just want to ask two more questions and, and then we'll wrap up this session here. The first is going to be about um, credit line support. This is an issue that's come up as a potentially distinguishing factor for some companies in in making themselves as attractive as suppliers to their distributors and, and customers. And the second is uh, in the area of having a standard process and whether a standard way of managing distributors 
is uh, is good or bad. Some companies seem to prefer to let their uh, distribution managers kind of take their own approach and be more cowboys, if you will, and others prefer to have it very much by the book and everybody fills out the spreadsheet and that's the way it works. So turning to the first of those, the credit support side. So supplying companies often try to broaden their appeal for a channel by providing credit extension either to the distributor or to the end customer. Have you seen a program like this that uh, works well? Yeah, I've seen several different things. Um, Dan, the, there, it really depends on the size of the distributor and whether you're concerned about his credit worthiness issues or whether you're really more focused on what the end customer credit worthiness issues are and what kind of product you're selling. That's really important too. If I look at the IC side of things or the actual tangible hardware side of the high-tech sale, typically, you know, the distributors need to have that stuff in stock to some level. And that, in the end, causes the distributor to act like a bank in a way because they're, they're spending a lot of money to put that stuff in stock. And depending what the final price is that goes out and what they sell it for, um, you know, can or cannot cause a problem in terms of the amount of money that they're holding or that the supplier is holding for the distributor and then ends up rebating back to them in terms of price concessions. Um, I know that we'll be talking in another podcast more in detail about those kind of things, but suffice it to say here that there are ways to mitigate that, but you really have to be careful because there's certain things you can do and can't do, and it does depend on whether you're trying to um, protect your distributor's work that they've done on your behalf and not have another distributor uh, at the last minute who's competing uh, take it away from the one that did all the work just because they have a lower price. Um, I'm, again, assuming that in the large-scale operation that you have not only within a distributor competing lines, meaning that your competitors are sitting on the same shelf as yourself within a distributor, but that you also have multi-distribution representing you so that you have multiple different distributors calling on the same customer base to really cover it properly. And what you don't want is you don't want them fighting at a customer on price Right. Because in the end, all you're doing is you're draft, drag, dragging your price down into the mud. So we'll talk about that more later. But that, those kind of considerations are come into play when you're trying to figure out whether you can do something about helping your distributor with credit issues or with just general, you know, stockholding issues. You know, now if you're talking about a software product, which I've also have experience in, mm-hmm. um, software is completely different. It's no tangible object. And as soon as you give a piece of software to an end customer when they purchase something, if that end customer doesn't pay for it, you really have nothing you can do about that. You can't really get it back. Hmm. You can't, um, you know, disable it. Um, and so there's a completely different scenario there where a distributor might, um, you know, order something from you and then come back to you and say, oh, well, I want a refund on that because my customer never paid me for it. Well, at that point, you've already shipped it out. And hmm. many software companies don't have a return policy from distributors because there's really nothing to return. Mm. So it's once you sell it, you sold it. And so I have seen programs that are very effective where a supplier can help mitigate the credit risk of the, of the, of the distributor to his end customer who might or might not um, you know, pay the bill. And there's ways to, you know, knowing that in advance, you can disable the software for a certain period of time, and you can help that distributor try to collect the money from the end customer and or not require him to pay it to the supplier. It does go into default. It, you know, the end customer never pays it. So there are there are different things, but it's very much um, specific to each situation. Got it. Got it. Okay. 
Last question here um, as we wrap up. So we often find that our multinational companies have several channel, channel managers or distribution managers in a particular region, and each has their own approach to managing distributor relationships. Is this kind of variety good, with each person adapting to their particular partnerships? Or do you think companies should consider a more unified approach to channel management that consistently drives towards both top-level and frontline motivation of distributor personnel? I guess as a clarifying question, I would, I would imagine when you say regions, you're talking about a region like North America, for instance, right, or, or, or Asia-Pac. Is that what you mean by a region? Yeah, exactly. So for most of our clients, it's, it's Latin America, Asia-Pacific, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and so forth. Okay. What I would say to answer my question is there is a lot of benefit to having a cohesive approach. If you have, um, you know, so within a region, for instance, and let's talk about the Americas, if you had somebody in, you know, the West Coast and a different guy in the East Coast and a different guy in the Central, they're working with distributors who, by the way, these days are multinational, as you say, and they're cross-continent. So there's certainly no regional distributors left in Boston and a different one in, in the Bay Area you really can't have a different approach to them because they are operating as one entity. And if you have one guy on the East Coast completely doing a different program than the guy on the West Coast, it can be very confusing and it can be uh, not, you know, it, it won't work very well. It won't be very efficient. Now, that's really when, that's when I'm talking about that. I'm talking about policies and how you manage that distributor. In terms of how you go to the end customer with the distributor, you know, you might have one guy on the East Coast who loves to travel with them, as I mentioned earlier, and you have one on the West Coast who maybe does it differently. So those kind of variances are great. But in terms of running a program and having a cohesive program that works for you, it really needs to be at least cross-regional. It's not global because in the end, it's a global world these days. And very often, a design is designed, a product is designed at a customer's bench in um, the Midwest of the U.S., but it goes into production at a, at a, at a manufacturer in China. And if you don't have a cohesive program that, that expands, or that covers the whole globe and covers, you know, that puts that all together, you're going to have trouble getting anybody interested in designing there in the Midwest of the U.S. because he knows he's not going to pick up an order. And remember, the distributor doesn't make any money unless they pick up an order. And so that's a really critical thing to consider. So I would answer that question and I would say, in today's environment, you really can't have a completely independent set of regional managers doing their own thing with distribution. Right, right. Great. And it, it's a good reminder for our listeners that if you're looking for a consistent way to structure your channel management, Frontier Strategy Group has done a number of case studies, a number of profiling uh, initiatives. Where we've looked at what some companies have done really well in this regard, so we're happy to provide some advice on that front. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing some of your years of experience with us here, Rick. As a reminder, uh, Rick is one of many esteemed members of FSG's Expert Advisors Network who complement our research analysts' work with their deep, experience-based understanding of particular issues. All Frontier Strategy Group clients are welcome to reach out to your account manager if you would like to have your own conversation with Rick or with another expert in our network. You may browse our list of expert advisors on our client portal under Services, Community of Experts. In addition, FSG has a full suite of supporting best practices, tools, and benchmarking data to support MNCs in getting the best performance out of their channel partners, regardless of which stage they are in in the distribution management lifecycle. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rick. Thank you very much, Dan.